0: the podcast of the Australian Democrats. I'm your host, Alana Mitchell, and on this episode, the results are finalised for the New South Wales state election. Chris Minns has been sworn in as the new New South Wales Premier after Labor defeated the coalition government of Dominic Perrottet. The fall of the Perrottet government was confirmed on election night, but the final margin and makeup of Minns government, either as a majority or minority Labor government, took longer to establish at first it looked like men's would lead a majority labor government with as many as 50 seats in the 93 seat parliament but over the weeks it took to finalize the count in each seat in the legislative assembly his margin was whittled down to 45 seats leaving him in charge of a minor government in new south wales this isn't a bad thing dominic perrottet's government was a minor government in its final term so new south wales has swapped one minority government for another. It was just as well Steve and I promised to look at the New South Wales state election after the count was finalised, because our second thoughts on New South Wales ended up being a little bit different to our first thoughts. Steve and I pay our respects to the traditional custodians of the lands upon which we recorded this episode, and their elders past and present. Sovereignty never ceded. As much as I'm entertained by the fact that you and I agreed not to talk about it and then did it anyway, it's been a really interesting sort of wait as we find out what the results were, because our first impressions were very different from what's actually happened. Yeah, in the end,
1: it's ended up being more like what we thought it was going to be before the count came in or the partial count when when we last spoke. And and it sort of settled you know, more where we thought originally that it might, but it certainly wasn't looking that way on the night and and it wasn't looking like that the, the the following day. So it has been really fascinating to see it fall out over the last couple of weeks.
0: Yeah, because I think on the night and even like the sort of the couple of days following, it was like, oh, are well, they going to get 50 seats? They'll, they'll rule a majority, smashed it. And the media very quickly lost interest in the whole thing. <laughs>
1: Pretty much, yeah.
0: And it's it's been interesting sort of watching the count trickle down to completion and you go, oh, the slowly pulling back of the expectations where it's like, oh, they might get 49 seats. And then it's like, oh, they, they may not get a majority. And now they've only got 46, which is quite a distance away from where everyone assumed they, they ended up on the night. It's It's been quite remarkable. Well, it,
1: it looks like they've landed with 45 even, three short of their... Or well, two short of a majority and three short of where they thought they were going to end up. There are no longer any seats in doubt. And the last seat that was called, I want to say just yesterday, but it might have been on Friday, good good Friday, potentially even Thursday before Easter, came down to just fifty votes, which was the seat of ride. So these are really knife edge margins that they were waiting on determining. So forty five seats. There are three Greens, there are 36 coalition MPs, and there are nine other. Wow. that's And that's, that's an interesting one. That is an interesting one. And those mm. nine others seem to be independents. They're mm. not affiliated with any particular party. They are independent MPs from around the state.
0: Which I think is good. We've made it very clear over a long time in this podcast that you and I are not opposed to a diverse parliament. <laughs> <Not at all. laughs> not at all. So so yeah, it is super interesting and I think it is in some ways possibly the best outcome for the people of New South Wales. You, you guys were in minority government for some time before this election anyway, not that anyone in the media seemed to notice that, but I think it's a good thing for Lake to be in minority and have to negotiate on all the stuff they want to implement for New South Wales.
1: I, I think it's a, it's a good start. It's a good way to begin a, a government, I think, and it, it puts them in a position where they either need to negotiate with independents or potentially the three Greens, and that in itself is interesting. So do they negotiate with the Greens on, on some policies and, and, and have that block of votes that gets them through? We've seen that work well in the past at the federal level. We've seen it work even today in the ACT government Mm -hmm. where, you know, like Labor and the Greens have an an informal or or formal, semi-formal coalition of of sorts where they they govern very well in the ACT. Could we see something similar here? There were three independent MPs who came out very quickly. I think it was even on Sunday morning, but certainly by Monday after the election, they had indicated that they would support Chris Minns. And the, and the ALP in, in forming a minority government. So there's there's already relationships building between those different groups so that Labor has people that they can work with. Hopefully they can work with them constructively. But I, I like the idea of them having to work with others to get mm. things done.
0: Yeah, me too. And it, it was kind of surprising to me how small the margin between Labor and the coalition in new south wales actually ended up being i mean was it 36 to 45 is not a big margin
1: well you're from west australia so <laughs> you're 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 used to different margins yes yes i, I yes i know. have to admit
0: my, my my understanding of a margin is is probably uh, somewhat skewed uh, in light of, of of recent electoral events in wa i mean look it, it is
1: it is somewhat close um i think the key point is that it's somewhat closer than we were expecting the the talk um when the count was going on, the indications were that Labour would win somewhere between, you know, forty seven and fifty seats, as you as you mentioned. And some of those seats where they were close, where they were ahead, they've lost all of them. And they've ended up with just the forty five that were declared on the night.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. It's been fascinating to just watch this this assumed lead just evaporate. And and like you said, they've ended up with the 45 that were crawled on the night and that's it. And,
1: and, and with some big swings, I'm reading through the list of, of seats. The ALP like retained the seat of Bega but had a 17% swing towards it. They retained the seat of Blue Mountains and had an 8.4% swing towards them. They lost Balmain to the Greens. The Greens held Balmain. But it was an eight point two percent swing to Labour, which is also really surprising, right? Wow. ALP retained Auburn, ten point three percent swing towards Labour. I mean, these are these are big movements. Some of them not so much. Canterbury, again, Labour won, ten point five swing towards them. Castle Hill, the Liberal Party retained, but with an eleven and a half percent swing against them towards Labour. You yeah. yeah, like these are, these are big movements, big, big movements.
0: The the last time that we spoke about this, you know, we were talking about the fact that it, like a, a seat with a 20% margin can right. no longer be considered safe because of these massive swings. And um, m- much as we, we're sort of expressing surprise that they ended up only with the 45 seats that, w- that were declared on the night, that does not discount the enormous swings that happened in those seats that the Liberals have retained. Uh, like you said, like Ride came down to 50 votes. I don't know what the, the the margin on was on Ride prior to the election, but I imagine that it was fairly large and it's been whittled down to nothing.
1: It was a pretty healthy one. Let me just bring it up. It was an 8.9% swing towards the Labor Party on wow. a two-party preferred basis. Like it literally came down to 50 votes. The Labor Party, Lyndall Howison, the Labor Party candidate, like literally just missed out by 50 votes.
0: Hello. Editing Alana here. Just a quick update on Ride. It went down to 50 votes. It was then subjected to a recount because of the tiny, tiny margin. And the Liberal Party retained it on a margin of 54 votes after a second count. So first count was correct. Good that they checked. Anyway, back to the pod.
1: On a first preference basis, Liberal Party got 45.3%, Labor 39%. The Greens, Sophie Eddington got 107 And then the distribution of preferences, most of that went to Labor and enough of it went to the Liberal Party. They got over the line.
0: There's still a, like, you know, 8 or 9% swing. That is huge.
1: That used to be considered well and truly safe. But uh, it's equally, we're seeing quite a lot of shifts against the coalition seats. I think people in New South Wales, after 12 years, there was a lot of anger, a lot of disillusionment. Personally, I was I was surprised that they won last time. Mm. Um, I really didn't think they would win in 2019 with Barry Jenkins. I thought what they had done in the amalgamation of the councils uh, of the councils um, of disbanding the the elected councils and appointing administrators of ramming through the WestConnex project using those administrators in the inner west areas where there was like a lot of opposition to it. I th- I thought that would have some some implications, and it certainly lost them a lot of votes. Mm -hmm. But they lost votes in the seats that they were going to lose anyway. And so the end result was that from an electoral map point of view, they didn't lose the election, they retained government. Part of me thought maybe the same thing was going to happen here. And a lot of the commentary and analysis around how this election was going to go came down to that question. Would the swing against the coalition and that disillusionment against the coalition occur in places where it would matter from an electoral point of view, or would it simply mean more people disillusioned with them in seats that they're going to lose anyway? And that was really a big question.
0: They were 12-year-old government going back to the people and asking to become a 16-year-old government, which is a big ask on any level, not to discount that. And they had a relatively new premier in, in Dominic Perrottet. Having replaced um, Berejiklian, it would have been interesting to see if you know if Berejiklian hadn't been caught up by ICAC and and um, had resigned as a as a response to that, if she had led them to this election, how things would have gone. But again, that's a sliding doors moment. We'll never know. But um, we will never know no, because she but- was caught
1: up in a corruption scandal, <laughs> and she was called out by ICAC, um, right. who, you know, like did the world of the, the world of good by holding off on releasing that report until after the election was done. Um, yeah. We'll, we'll find out soon enough. But some of the seats that they gained, so looking through the list of seats that changed hands is interesting, and I, I think we should sort of come to that in a moment, but asking for a fourth term in government, when the person doing the asking is someone who is a controversial figure. I don't think the people of New South Wales particularly warmed to Dominic Perrottet. I don't think stepping into the, the role of Premier from the moment that Berejiklian was forced to resign or chose to resign when the ICAC inquiry began, like the the work that he did was not, to warn the people of New South Wales to him. He was mm. quite businesslike. He comes across in a fairly cold way. That was not what was needed here. He really needed to close that gap and, and form a rapport very, very quickly. I don't think he did that. And then subsequently, through the course of the campaign, there was this choice between Chris Minns and a fresh Labour government, a new choice. And Chris Minns is a, is a much more personable character he seems like a much more genuine character and the sorts of people that he talks about are healthcare workers and teachers and retail frontline workers and this kind of thing. They're Mm -hmm. they're the people that he's speaking about all the time and he does it in a way that feels very authentic and very genuine. When Dominic Perrottet talks about those same people, it does not have the same resonance about it. It does not come across as, as genuine. So in, in an election in the shadow of the pandemic, where those people in particular played such critical roles and, and continue to do so, I think that lack of connection and that lack of warmth really, really hurt Perite and, and the coalition.
0: See, that's fascinating. Like, as like, obviously, as an outsider to New South Wales, I've missed all of that. The media coverage is just oh, Mins is he's unknown. He's you know, he's very he's perceived to be very young. He's not necessarily super young, but in political terms, he's young, mm-hmm. and and he's doing an out you know an elbow and and presenting as a small target and all this sort of thing. And but none of that you know authenticity and warmth that you just spoke about has been mm-hmm. picked up by the, the so called political experts. And and from an outsider's perspective, Dominic Perrottet, like the coldness and the businesslike sort of aspects of Dominic Perrottet, did come across to me from the other side of the country. And I, I, went, I was at my uh, friend's place at breakfast this morning, and we talked about it. And again, from from the the independent sovereign nation of Australia, the overwhelming association with Perrottet is that he's the guy that let COVID rip, and there's massive negatives about that and and how that was handled.
1: Yeah, the other the other thing to to remind our listeners of in the lead up to the campaign kicking off was the scandal with Perate where the story came out from his twenty-first birthday, where he dressed up in a Nazi uniform or an SS uniform at his own twenty-first fancy dress party. It's never a great look you know, for someone to dress up as a Nazi, you know, for fun. For the person who wants to be re-elected as premier and get another four years in government, it's it's a particularly poor look, especially someone, as you're saying, who was responsible for that let it rip strategy, not only in New South Wales, but he was, he was someone who really pushed for it at a national level. And I think if he hadn't been so adamant, that New South Wales was going to do that, the pressure that that put on the rest of the country to go along, because if New South Wales is going to do that and the rest of the states try and hold firm, they're, they're trying to put in place travel restrictions on New South Wales and they're essentially putting a hard border around New South Wales, that New South Wales itself won't honour. Mm. It becomes very, very difficult. Once, once he took that position to National Cabinet and said, we're going to do this, With the clear support of Scott Morrison and the federal government at the time, the coalition government at the time, it became very, very difficult for the likes of Queensland, uh, Victoria in particular, the north and south borders, to enforce it themselves. So they were kind of forced to go along with it in solidarity and Team Australia Mm approach to these things. It's not gone well for us.
0: Ironically, I think Perite probably contributed to the Crushing victory that Mark McGowan uh, enjoyed in 2021, because WA had the luxury of basically saying, "We, you know, if we're going to build a wall, make New South Wales pay for it." You know, we essentially have a desert between us and the rest of the country, where we were able to go. Actually, peace. yeah, I mean, I really felt Victoria Queensland in in being. Placed in that invidious position of basically having to go along because otherwise the, particularly the towns across the borders on those two exactly the, right you know it's yeah. impossible. I mean it was already impossible, but I mean WA at least did have the luxury of being able to go. Actually, no, we're going to maintain our strong border and we we will not that not. I don't feel that WA ever actually let it rip, but we sort of tried to come in for a soft landing and yes. we relax restrictions when everybody will not well 90 percent of the population were vaccinated yeah. not yeah. when 30 yeah, yeah. percent of the population are vaccinated
1: you know as you say wa is protected by by a very large desert it also has the luxury of really only having three roads into it um <laughs> yes. you know to police the the reality really was that as soon as New South Wales said we're going to do this it became very very difficult for everybody else and you really can point to Dominic Perrottet as being the architect of that shift it was one of the first things that he did if you recall when he Mm. when he took over was basically say that's that's it we're we're opening we've we've vaccinated enough people we're gonna we're gonna do this and it was very very soon thereafter that everyone else sort of had to make similar choices. As you say, Mark McGowan held out for a little bit longer and said, we, we agreed to open up when we hit 90% first vaccinations, that's what we'll do. When, when we get there, that's when we'll open up. I think realistically, it should have come later. We should probably have been aiming for 90% double vaccinations before we opened up and and we may have been in quite a different place but the result instead is an extra 19,000 Australians who have died of covid since that shift
0: yeah i think we were over like over 90 on the first vaccination i think we were above 75% on the second vaccination when we started yeah. to open up and I, I do think that made a massive difference and the fact that it was Perité that ran with it, with the full blessing and support of Scott Morrison, and look, I'm I'm an atheist, so I my perception of, of of deeply religious people is probably a little bit different to other people's, but having a deeply religious Pentecostal Prime Minister and a deeply religious Catholic I thought I was Premier in lockstep on that particular issue. When when Perrottet first became Premier, there was a, a bit of a frisson about, oh, you know, he's sort of, sort of this hard-right Catholic, uh, what's the word, not fundamentalist. but basically, you know, hard- he
1: is. No, but basically he yeah. is. He, he okay. is a Catholic fundamentalist is the best way to describe it.
0: Yep. Okay, cool, because I, I didn't want to cast aspersions, but you sort of had, at that stage, people were seeing Scott Morrison as a Pentecostalist fundamentalist mm. and to have... Someone who they perceived to be a Catholic fundamentalist, they kind of branded each other. If that makes sense, yes. So it was it was not a good look in the very beginning. So, like as you said, just when he needed to be warm and fuzzy and connecting with the people of New South Wales, he was kind of going in the exact opposite direction. And yes, yeah. And I think that frame... and and people I think have been surprised by the fact that he. The, the latter half of of his premiership didn't go that same way. Like it, it he was quite reasonable on things that people assumed that he would be quite firm on. When he, when he first became Premier, there was, particularly with all the stuff happening in the US and with Scott Morrison as Prime Minister, there was, I think, rumblings of, oh, maybe this will be New South Wales' first step toward, you know, Gilead. But it didn't turn out that way. He turned out to be a much more businesslike and relaxed kind of person, you know, more so than I think people expected based on his religious affiliations and conservative outlook on things. Yeah,
1: Perete is a very conservative individual. He is a supporter like, and, and was quite a, an open and ardent supporter of Donald Trump. When he won the 2016 election, Perete was quite overt in his praise of Trump as a, as a person and as a politician and, and welcomed the brand of politics that he brought to America. These are all strange positions to hold, but heavily consistent with him. And there, there were a range of other issues in the lead up to this election that weren't good for Perité. So I, I mentioned the, 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 the Nazi costume, but equally as Premier, and potentially this is something that was kicked off when he was treasurer, but he uh, handed over management of the New South Wales cemeteries to the Catholic Church, real estate worth or, you know, like a a business worth $5 billion, and he he basically just signed it over to them. Now, as a Catholic and as a very conservative Catholic and a well-connected Catholic, to sign over such a large chunk of sort of state property property, and our cemeteries essentially are a, a, a utility. They're, they're guaranteed to be one of the services that we need to use in in, in the state at some mm-hmm. point, um, only the once potentially for ourselves. But, you know, certainly there's something that we we all are connected with. It didn't go to tender. There was no sort of brief for it. There was no bid for it. He just basically said, do you want this? <laughs> Can I sign over a large chunk of, of public land and, and business to you. That's quite odd.
0: Yeah, and, and particularly a Catholic treasurer or premier, because I, I remember this, and I, I can't remember if it, it was if he was treasurer at the time when it all started. I mean, there's a direct conflict of interest. You can't argue that there was not, particularly with it not going to tender or having any kind of scrutiny. That's super dodge.
1: That shouldn't have helped him. There was obviously the part in the Berejiklian and uh like that that whole investigation into her and daryl maguire you know there's that famous bit on tape very quickly and saying dom just does what i tell him to do i found you the money for your boondoggle dominic just does what i tell him to at one point in the past might have sunk somebody's career but he he seemed to like get away with that without any issues whatsoever the thing I think also didn't help them particularly when you sort of think about the distribution of votes and and winning certain electorates and and the labor party needing to win certain electorates there were a few people who retired and they really needed to stick around and them retiring not only meant that the seat was up for grabs in a way that it might not have been otherwise but also that those people weren't out there campaigning so people like brad hazard Who's a very high profile figure, retired at this election. So he didn't stand for re election. Rob Stokes, who was transport minister, again, very well known, didn't stand for election this time around. And so you've got like two figures that you would normally have out there, absolutely fronting the cameras, talking about policy introducing candidates and all of that kind of thing simply off the field completely it shifted a lot of the responsibility onto Dominic Perrottet himself but also Matt Keane who's very very good but they can only be in so many places and they can only do so many media appearances in a day and the loss of those two individuals I think really took some wind out of the coalition's campaign capability if you like.
0: And I think also probably reflected there that they're coming back to the people, going, "We want a fourth term to continue the work that we're doing, Oh, but half our cabinet's not going to be there because they're all retiring." That that doesn't really strike a, a vote of confidence from from within the government, you know.
1: Exactly right, and and at a time when the alternative question is, we need some fresh blood and we need a change, you're helping to make the case that well, maybe a fresh change can come with a fresh flag and a fresh party, not just some fresh faces kind of thing. Like, why don't, why don't we do this properly and give the Labor Party a go rather than get your reserve team yeah. to come in and, and, and have a go at it.
0: And how much damage do you think the ongoing car crash that is John Barilaro and all of his scandals, how much damage do you think that did to the government in its dying days?
1: Well, quite quite a bit and potentially more than we, we think. So in his area, in his electorate, and, and in those rural communities, John Barlow is quite well-liked. He was well-connected. He was, he, was, he was quite a personable fellow. Like Barnaby Joyce, he, he does his retail politics very well. The appearances, the talking to people, the handshakes, the working the crowd at the, at the fair type of thing, but also in town halls and, and walking around and greeting people at the pub and, and all of that kind of stuff. He's very, very good at that side of it. And again, like he's, he just wasn't there. So, like, you've got someone who would normally be generating a lot of energy. He was a controversial figure, so he would have also attracted quite a bit of attention. Unlike oh. Barnaby Joyce, he can string sentences together that are coherent. And, <laughs> you know, that's that's not necessarily something that Barnaby Joyce is, is well known for. But no. certainly, you know, like John, John Barilaro is.
0: The low bar, yeah. but he manages to clear it.
1: It is a low bar, but he, he does manage to clear it and, and clear it reasonably well. He was caught on tape basically bragging about their pork-barrelling abilities and their ability to channel money into communities for political gain. It backed up complaints from the electorate right across New South Wales that money wasn't going where it needed to. And it came hard on the heels of an audit report into the New South Wales Bushfire Recovery Fund. Where it was shown that 90% of funds from the first round of that recovery went to coalition health seats, despite the fact that Labour seats were hit harder in, in many respects. So there was some sort of jiggery pokery that went on that resulted in most of that money going quickly into those Liberal health seats. We saw something similar with the floods a couple of years ago. Flood recovery scott morrison did that remember like he he announced some sort of federal funding to help with the flood recovery the premier was right there next to him and he announced funding for coalition health seats and even though the floods don't stick to boundaries like that. The liberal held, uh, labor held seats in that same area were cut out of those, those funding arrangements. Like that kind of stuff really rankles with people. Even coalition supporters look mm. at that kind of thing where their neighbors are getting shafted for political gain. they absolutely remember that when it comes time to cast the ballot.
0: I think that damaged, obviously, Scott Morrison in the 2022 election and then would have gone on to damage the Perrottet government for exactly the same reason because the naked political opportunism really grates against the innate Australian sense of the fair go and it's a cliche, it's often correctly and widely mocked, but it is a kind of a cornerstone. As you said, it's a cornerstone. It is real. You know, yeah. because yeah, even people who nominally support the coalition and 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 are benefiting from the coalition's largesse don't like watching their neighbours get screwed over because of political affiliation and political gain. And it just, yeah. as much as our politics, both nationally and at state level, is are sort of breaking down into tribes and and barracking for teams. There is still that innate sense of. Like this is all well and good, but we need to be governing in the interest of the country or the state. And when the interests of the state are being trampled under the, you know, the need for political gain, deeply partisan political gain, that's when people just call time out and go, no, no, we're not standing for this.
1: You've got communities sleeping in tents and and caravans and and, and camper vans and the like, and Meryl is playing politics with the recovery funds yeah like, you know and you've got people from different electorates sleeping in the same caravan park because that's the one that's available to both of them for them to be sitting there going oh, i got my money but i live in a different postcode from you and that's a liberal postcode and you're in a labor postcode so like they are not going to look on that kind of stuff well and and they didn't so i think i, I think that came through the last thing that i i, I do want to just sort of pick up on in terms of the, the challenges that Peratae faced going into this election was Scott Morrison. So a lot of your will towards Scott Morrison, and and it didn't get better, and it certainly hasn't got better since he lost the federal election. But you couldn't get Scott Morrison in New South Wales campaigning. It was it was toxic, <laughs> right? It was it was just straight up poison to have him appearing, and and campaigning. Whereas normally a former prime minister getting out there and supporting candidates would be a huge boost nor could they bring in peter dutton
0: no and, and and it's funny because like you now have two former prime ministers in new south wales who are completely useless to the new south wales coalition and campaigning which is scott morrison and tony abbott because they're both despised for different reasons i mean tony abbott because he's perceived to be like genuinely insane and morrison because he's his Morrison and, and just the whole nation ended up despising him. And then Dutton, as leader of the opposition, coming in as a Queenslander, just no, that wouldn't have flown at all.
1: That wouldn't have flown. And he's not a well-liked character. He's not None. a warm character. People won't cheer on the fact that Peter Dutton has come to their electorate. It's not going to win you any votes at all uh, and might lose you some. Yeah. Um, and, and don't forget, we also have both John Howard and Malcolm Turnbull in mm. New South Wales as well. The Liberal Party tends to wheel out John Howard very, very late in the game. He, he was wheeled out. He is increasingly ineffective when it comes to campaigning, as we saw in the federal election and in the Victorian election, the recent Aston by-election um, and the New South Wales state election. He has not been able to garner votes at all, and Malcolm Turnbull won't help them. No. Which also tells you a lot.
0: Yes, and I kind of can't blame, like, like why would Malcolm Turnbull help? No. Yeah, you know, he literally has no reason. I mean, why he's still a member of the Liberal Party is a mystery, to be brutally honest. And it and it's enormous cheek on their part if if they were to go to him and expect him to to, to help them after what they did to him. As much as as so many of the country's current ills can be traced back to Howard's regime. You do have to acknowledge his his continued willingness in in you know, the twilight in the twilight years of his life to get out there and do his bit for the party. That's credible, and it's interesting that he rapidly diminishing returns on the use of Howard. They're using him sparingly, and you know as you said at the last moment, but it's not having the effect. Yes. And I think because people are waking up to the fact that you know the twenty years since Howard was in power, all of those chickens have sort of come home to roost.
1: I can't recall whether it was the Aston by-election, and I know we're going to cover this separately, so I, I won't delve into it too much, but in, in one of the recent elections, John Howard penned a letter to the electorate, <laughs> and I, as I say, I can't recall whether it was the Aston by-election or the New South Wales election. They happened only a, a week apart, so my, my memory is a little blurry, but it went out to all of the households. And in true liberal style, embracing the 21st century, embracing modernity in its fullest, it was only sent to the male member of the household.
0: Oh, yes, I remember that.
1: And I I think it's a beautiful summary of where the modern liberal party shoots itself in the foot, quite literally, when they do wheel out John Howard, that that would be the way that they utilize him, is to send a letter to the husband.
0: And- the- What's really entertaining to me is the fact that that would have gotten through I don't know how many people in their comms team. Exactly Um, right. And Mm -hmm. it still went out. Like nobody either had the wherewithal or perhaps the authority to go that may not be the killer comms piece that you guys think it is. I mean, regardless of whatever the content of that piece was, I mean, how it is, is perfectly capable of writing a stirring thingy to the troops but to send it only to the male members of the household is like you couldn't make that up like if, if you were doing a, a comedy about the election the writers room just would not let that slip through to the final script because no, it would be
1: too, too stupid that's not good enough we're, we're above that kind of of, of thing and yet that's exactly what he did. It was kind of wild. One one last thing about the Liberal Party and their campaign and their policies and the rest of it before we take a look at the Labor Party, uh, which was not without its it things, At the Liberal Party sort of official launch and big campaign event and and that kind of stuff, the Premier announced sort of one of their signature policies was this thing where the state would invest a few hundred dollars when a child was born and then for the first, I think, 10 years of their life, They would match contributions if the family put in another, you know, $500 or $300, I forget what it was, then the state would also contribute the same amount. And over the course of, you know, the first 10 years of their life or until they were whatever it was, it may have even been 18, but whatever it was, there would be this pot of money with them, their name on it that them and their parents and the state had made happen. And of course, it was quickly, quickly panned as being horribly privileged and, and horribly inequitable. An example of someone who's very much out of touch, the the idea that people would be able to contribute any money at all from low-income families to, to just sit there for their child was, was farcical, especially in the midst of a cost of living crisis and inflation running at 8% at the time. I think it might have been 7.8% if it, it had just been announced. Wages, real wages going backwards and sitting at a level that they hadn't been at since 2010. And, and here's the the Premier essentially showering money on the, the, the more privileged segments of our society and setting up their campaign on it as a reminder of who they look after and the idea that inequality is in their DNA. It was Remarkable,
0: and to make light of it again, for a man with seven children, kind of again, kind of a conflict of interest.
1: Yeah, they were going to make out really well from that. That's right, they were thing. going to make out
0: like bandits on that. Yeah, I mean, the idea of an annuity that you receive when you turn eighteen and it's part of your coming of age kind of thing. In principle, is not a bad idea. Yeah. But the idea that parents would then need to contribute to it, and that the more you contribute, the basically the more the state would then kick in on their part yeah. to match, is where it, it all fell apart. Because that was yeah. that's just ridiculous. But I I do think that uh you know not that this is Democrats' policy, and and that has not been investigated. The evidence behind it has not been investigated on any level. But I do remember, I, th- I think it is something that has that has either been looked at or has been implemented in countries overseas. Mm. But it literally is, when you come of age, you get this amount from the government, basically to sort of just put, you know, get you on your way as, as, a, as an adult. And... You could means test it so that if your parents are exceptionally well off, you probably don't need it. But if you're a kid coming out of foster care or you're a kid coming out of a deeply underprivileged household, then that's a bit of a bonus for you to get you on your way. The only slightly positive commentary that I could I could find on it when all that got announced outside of the house of derisive laughter, there was a there was a way in which to make it slightly more equitable and useful. But it was the very opposite of what Dominic Perrotton was putting forward.
1: Yes. Yes. I could take your scheme and make it more more equitable by doing a completely different scheme. That's um, right. It's kind of the same argument that we apply to the state tax cuts at the federal level, right? Mm. They're a great idea if we did something completely different.
0: If we, we completely re-engineered them to, to not resemble what they're currently formed. Yeah, it might you be know, okay. Yeah.
1: Yes. And, uh, there's, there's, there's something to be said for investing early so that people have money later in life, right? It's it's the same reason that we have superannuation. It could potentially, the same sort of mindset could be used to fund all sorts of things, but we don't need it. We've got taxes and we've got public health and, and the rest of it. Well, there's um, that
0: too, yeah. I mean, maybe sure. maybe if we lifted families out of poverty... It's crazy. It is a
1: crazy idea. might take off. It is a crazy idea.
0: Just before we get on to Labor, though, one question, and another what-if question that I I wanted to ask you, because it was very shocking when when Vera Shiklian suddenly resigned, and and we need to stress that she was never forced to resign. She chose to. The ICAC report, when it's eventually released, I think will be fascinating reading as as to why she resigned.
1: one word for it, yep.
0: (laughs) And I I think people were surprised when it was peritame and not Matt Keane who stepped up and became premier. And mm. there was clearly a deal done for this. Yeah. And I and at the time I wondered if Perrottet was not a, a compromise candidate, so to speak, that he would he would be going into an election that would be very, very difficult, if not impossible, to win in light of the then state of the government with the Darren Maguire Berejiklian scandals, never mind the Barilaro scandals that were unfolding, and then being asked for a fourth term, all that sort of stuff, and whether he was kind of a, I guess, sacrificial Premier in that, yeah, look, we'll give you what's left of this term. You go on to lose the next election. It, It would enable them to not burn somebody like Matt Keane without reason, if that makes sense.
1: Matt Keane could quite possibly have won this election, though.
0: It's true. Yeah.
1: Of all of the coalition candidates and and possible uh, people who were participating in this election, Matt Keen was potentially one who could have led them to victory. We can talk about his politics and and his policies at a, another time. But he is very well respected. He comes across as a much more moderate voice. He comes across as a, as a as one of the few coalition. MPs anywhere in the country who are strong on climate and strong on emissions reduction and that kind of thing, which is a big thing at the moment. The fact that the Liberal Party went to this election was still with relatively weak stance on on emissions reduction. The strength of it comes from Matt Keane. The things that are there is is his, and he could mm. easily, as, as Premier, have pushed for a little bit more and, and potentially would have. I'm not convinced that he wanted the job as evidenced by the fact that he didn't stand to be leader of the opposition when they subsequently lost the election. He was asked on election eve and he said, look, I'm going to think about it. And on Monday he said, no, nah, you know, the kids are of an age where I'd like to be around for them and I can't really do that if I've got that job. I don't know. I think I think maybe he, he is biding his time, but I yeah. I, I do think we could be looking at a fourth-term Liberal government had Matt Keane been in charge.
0: Interesting, yeah. Because also one, one of the reasons he listed as, as why he didn't choose to stand for leader of the opposition was also that you know, he's coughed an absolute bollocking from the Murdoch press and the lunatics on Sky News After Dark and, and mm-hmm. even to a degree the Fairfax papers uh, not Fairfax, sorry, the, the nine papers now that they're now called, over being seen as this sort of woke lefty climate change believing dude in, in the coalition. And I could understand that having been through that particular ringer, he wouldn't be in a huge hurry to step up and become even more prominent and, and a bigger target, particularly also when you have genuine lunatics like Ma- Mark Latham targeting uh, him.
1: Yeah, there's a lot. Mark Latham is a rabbit hole that we do not want to go down the guy increasingly is heading further and further out into a, a, a rather sort of toxic and disgraceful fringe. He re- reproved that as though we needed more evidence just last week um, yeah. with some comments that he made about another MP. And he's a member of One Nation who, as a party, continue to put out material that's just offensive, let's be frank. So let's not waste too much time with Mr Latham, but certainly I would not want to be working with him
0: if no, I you- were
1: Matt Keane. Definitely yeah.
0: not. I think Matt Keen is perfectly justified in saying, "Look, I've I've done enough. Thanks anyway." Yeah. I mean, he he did indicate that yeah. he'd be happy to serve in shadow cabinet if he was asked, but that was probably the limit of where where he was willing to go to. Which, and I kind of think, well, that's fair enough. Exactly right. So, talk to me about Labor, because again, as an outsider to New South Wales, my perception of Chris Minns is probably very different from yours as a resident who has sort of seen him up close and and been bombarded with uh, with the election campaign.
1: We we haven't really seen him up close very much at all until the election campaign in particular. It was one of the criticisms of him coming into the campaign that he didn't seem to be cutting through, you know, the same sort of. Criticisms we heard of Anthony Albanese in the lead up to the federal election last year. No one really knows him. Uh, what does he stand for? Uh, who who is this guy? Questions being asked by a very disingenuous media, whose job it is to find out that stuff and report it. Um, <laughs> so for them to sort of sit there going, "Well, oh, we don't know who he is," literally means you're not doing your job, or you're you're not being authentic in your questioning. He's a pretty genuine guy. It's, and I I, I think the key thing for People in New South Wales is that he seems to be quite strong on the public service, quite strong on unions and the union workforce, quite strong in favour of workers, but also there to look out for, or at least enough in their policy platform to touch on things like housing affordability and helping out renters re sort of bringing back or deprivatizing some public services or previously public services that had been privatized promising not to privatize anything new and this was one of the things that he used quite effectively in the lead-up to the election was this promise that the Liberal Party had made in the past and they make it continuously oh, of course we're not going to sell off assets of course we're not going to privatize the services. And then subsequently, that's all they seem to do is around for stuff to sell. But one of the things in particular that Dominic Perrottet had promised, you know, I'm not going to touch was the Sydney water which is obviously mm. quite a critical piece of, of public infrastructure. And subsequently, you know, within the space of a few days, reports leaked that the government had already been investigating how and which parts they might privatise. So Chris Wins was able to use that quite effectively to show that whatever they say they're going to do, basically they exist to sell off public assets. That, that seems to be the only thing that they can do. They sold off this, they sold off this other thing, and now they want to sell off our water supply. That's not going to go well for us. So he's he went into the election saying we're going to stop privatizing our, our good things we're going to have a state owned clean energy corporation so similar to one of the promises that was made in Victoria around state owned energy and a lot of focus on boosting wages for frontline healthcare workers teachers that kind of thing i will say that his new cabinet is 50% women it's a it's a it's a strong group of people there are some Very, very well-credentialed and and long-serving parliamentarians in that group. We, we, We are yet to really see anything from them in terms of what they're delivering. Whilst keeping himself as a relatively small target, he was able to effectively use some of the coalition's stumbles against them well during the campaign. I think where he nearly came unstuck, and it's probably the reason why the election became as close as it was, was around the poker machine issue. And his effective support, or a rather strongly caveated criticism of poker machines and, and the clubs that operate them, really sort of stood out in the final couple of weeks of the campaign as something that they really didn't handle very, very well.
0: And it was quite surprising that someone like, Perite, which is a party of the free market and individual choice and freedom and so on and so forth, came out very strongly on the regulation of poker machines and yet Min's didn't. And uh, Yeah, I think you're right. I think that did damage him because it it is interesting because it it was Labor that introduced poker machines to New South Wales partly to help the funding of local clubs in lower socioeconomic areas. There was actually a... A purpose behind it and, and, and to and to keep in mind that poker machines back in, I think it was the fifties when these were introduced were very, very different based to oh, yeah. the poker machines that we have now. Literally it wasn't the until the
1: crank angle, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: literally the one-armed bandits. And it was literally not until the nineties when technology caught up and, and went went nuts that they did become the problematic scourge that they are. And it was super interesting to me to discover that. In New South Wales, clubs can have, I think, up to six hundred and fifty poker machines on premises, but a pub can only have thirty machines. And in the coverage of of the issues around poker, it's like, oh, they talk about pubs and clubs and and you yes. know, the scourge of poker machines and that sort of stuff. But it's fascinating to me because the it's it's really it's the clubs who are kind of mini casinos, pubs really can't compete um, in, in the, um, the, the preying on vulnerable communities aspect, although it's still not brilliant.
1: They're also yeah. everywhere. You know, like we, we, we do have a lot of yeah. pubs. The fact that they can have up to 30 machines isn't isn't great in and of itself. But I think the, like without, without getting into the policy area of poker machines, which on the one hand is really simple and on the other hand is fairly complicated. As, as a lot of these things are, his, his handling of it seemed quite Fumbled or hand fisted. They they chose a line to launch. A we're going to do a trial of a particular technology or a particular set of restrictions, and we're going to see how it goes. And we'll try it with 500 poker machines, or like really really restricted, given the thousands of them that exist in New South Wales. And it really seemed like a lame response.
0: Yeah, and look, I'm coming at it from the perspective of someone who lives in a state where we just don't have them.
1: You don't have yeah. them at all, right? Like no. if you want to if you want to play a poker machine, you have to go to the casino. Yep,
0: yeah. and it's not the same kind of poker machine that you guys have over east. The spitting reels effect that you guys have is actually illegal in WA. Cool. Oh. Um, yeah, so our we call them electronic gaming machines, and they do operate differently to poker machines in the east coast. So rather than having spinning reels, we'll have, say, balls that drop down or tiles that flip around or that sort of thing. And generally a spin will last longer than it would, say, in New South Wales where it spins around and, and, and the results can come up quite quickly. It, it's a, it is a fine line. In WA like like there's a noticeable difference between the way it would operate in, in Victoria, New South Wales, but it is essentially similar concept. But but yeah, but so heavily restricted. You can only get them at the casino, all the pubs and clubs. Well, we don't have a lot we don't have a big club scene over here in WA. Uh, yep. not not the way that you guys do, but all our pubs, their focus is on food and beverage.
1: The thing I think about the issue that's worth highlighting is that there were recent reports into the use of poker machines which stated quite clearly that one of their key uses seems to be money laundering for illegal activity. So they're a way in which the cash economy can launder its money. They're a way in which other illegal enterprises launder their money. And and it's done in, in a way that makes it very, very difficult to regulate. So, There's this problem. It comes hard on the heels of the findings by the regulators in WA, Victoria and New South Wales around Stark and uh, crown casino operations, that they were rife with money laundering, that they were being targeted by big underground illegal operations using them to launder their money. So Mm. this idea that there was a big problem and that poker machines played a central role in this illegal activity was was out there and had been made very plain. The idea that came from the Parate government, which was part of the report, was to introduce a cashless gaming card. So essentially, you stop the use of cash as the thing that you can buy in, right? Because as soon as you take cash out of the equation, then you introduce an audit trail in terms of where the money's come from. And then in addition, you can have additional controls on the amount of money that you can spend. All Chris Min's really had to do was come out against money laundering.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. (laughs) It's really all he had to do is be unequivocal and say, money laundering is something that is detrimental to our society it's an illegal activity that we want to see stopped this is one of the ways that we will work with the industry to to curb I'm, i'm not going to make promises on how we do that but it's something that we want to see stopped and, and move on and instead he put this sort of really half-assed as doing it far too much justice. It was a really, really weak trial on an issue that really needed a much more solid response but the substantive issue was the money laundering and he could have just focused on that. Now, there is a whole other thing around gambling and gaming and online gambling and, and online ads, gambling, advertising and a whole raft of other things which is where I say it gets more complicated because what you're allowed and what you're not allowed and where you can and where you can't and the sort of things you can advertise and we because is is not well regulated but this issue just felt like something that he could come out quite unequivocally and say money laundering bad mm. we're going to do something about it
0: it was kind of surprising that he couldn't join those two dots That that seemed like an like like to match even just to match day on the issue and make it go away yeah, it just seemed yeah, like a yeah, no-brainer yeah. Yeah,
1: okay. could have done. And it subsequently raised this idea that, well, actually, he's in bed with the gambling or gaming companies and he's in bed with the clubs. And and really, this then made it easy to raise the spectra of unions and, and the workers clubs and this kind of thing, calling the shots. And if they can call the shots on this, then what else are they calling the shots on when it comes to government policy? It was almost terminal in terms mm-hmm. of the damage that it did to his election at a time when he was well ahead. It was from that point over the next couple of weeks that the the race really narrowed again and he ended up with a minority government when maybe he could have he could have won a, a majority. Yeah. Especially when you look at, you know, like a a result like Ride that came down to 50 votes. And and another one I saw the other day was 375.
0: Yeah, but again, I I don't think it's a bad thing that he's coming into government and he's going to have to negotiate and play nicely with others. I, th- I think that can only be a good thing for New South Wales.
1: I, I agree. It will be interesting to see how he works with the crossbench, the extent to which he even tries to work with the Greens, given that he does have support from enough of the independents. He may decide not to. In the upper house, it's a slightly different beast. Labor has the same number of seats as the coalition. Oh. So Labor has 15, the coalition has 15 the Greens have four, One Nation has three, Shooters, Farmers, Fishers have two, Animal Justice has one, Legalised Cannabis has one, the Liberal Democrats have one. That's a mixed bag, but essentially, in order to get things through, he needs 22 votes. Mm-hmm. So he needs to find seven. The Greens have four. Oh, He's going to struggle with if he doesn't work with the Greens on legislation. So it, it would make sense to me to be working with them well in the lower house so that legislation goes into the upper house or into the legislative council with the support of the Greens going in.
0: Yeah, because he'd have to club mm. together, what, the Greens, uh, legalised cannabis, legalized animal justice. Cannabis,
1: and he still needs to find at least one He needs one to find more. a shooter. Yeah, probably.
0: That's, all, yeah, that's going to be all, fun.
1: Or One Nation. Again, like that's, <laughs> that's then him working with... Mark Latham.
0: No wonder Matt Keane, probably not sad that he didn't win this election. <laughs> A, that he was not Premier and B, that uh, he then he then did not go on to win it as, as you speculated that he might have been able to. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah uh, I think his bigger challenge is is going to be getting legislation through the upper house. That does seem to be where his challenge is going to lie. And I, I honestly don't know in New South Wales whether or not the – Liberal Party as an opposition will be as simply the say-no party that they are at a federal level. Certainly at a federal level, they really only seem to be able to say no to stuff. It'll be interesting to see what that looks like at a state level or whether or not they can, in fact, find constructive ways to work together.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point, the Dutton-led opposition and the federal level very much following the Tony Abbott no-alition playbook. Mm. But, again, the coalition in New South Wales was a very different beast. So, yes. yeah, that's going to be super interesting to see how whoever becomes the opposition leader in New South Wales um, chooses to take things.
1: Yeah. But certainly with animal justice, legalised cannabis and the Greens, the Labor might be able to get some things through.
0: Interesting times. Yeah. Because yeah. Um, yeah, again, in in the independent sovereign nation of Australia, we don't <laughs> we don't have that problem in the upper house.
1: Your um, problem is a lack of opposition.
0: Precisely, yeah. We are kind of oh, fortunate is probably not the right word, but it's ironic. Like if Mark McGowan hadn't been the principled and benefit of the state mm. kind of leader mm. that he is, he probably would not have won this crushing majority that he's got. But even being a relatively benign leader, good government does require a strong opposition because not, not not just to oppose bad stuff but to test good stuff and challenge good stuff and go, well, can we make it better? Like is this actually going to achieve what what you think it's going to achieve kind of thing? And to have untrammeled power and to be able to pass legislation unchallenged, it is, is, can be fraught. Some
1: it's good probably. stuff
0: has happened when we've reformed the upper house in WA, which was wildly undemocratic yeah. and under normal circumstances would probably We'd never have never succeeded get in getting yeah. that reformed. Yeah. So that was one good thing that came out of that. But in the WA upper house, there are two legalised cannabis MPs mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, to one Greens MP. <laughs> <laughs> and, oh, and okay. a small handful that are not Labor. so But, yeah, we have to wait a little bit longer to read over the entrails of that election. So this has been really, really interesting to go through the New South Wales one because I do think it was very, very interesting election on many levels because WA was the canary in the coal mine, then Labor retained government in Queensland and Victoria, then South Australia a much more moderate landslide certainly not a you know sure. wa level landslide but there was a a clear and decisive repudiation of the coalition in south australia which i think was deeply shocking and then obviously the federal election where which was a profound repudiation of the morrison government and so on the one hand like you said it could have gone either way the coalition could have snuck in in in, in the end if you know possibly if they had a different leader or possibly if dominic Perrottet had led from the beginning slightly differently but yeah, it's interesting to, that New South Wales has now joined the Labor fold, and we have wall-to-wall Labor governments on the mainland, and what that means for the country. How did your, you know, in the in our last chat, there were a few seats that you were keeping an eye on because they were of interest to you. Now I forget the gentleman's first name, but Keegan, the independent Keegan, romped it in in his seat in the end. Um, how did your other ones go?
1: So one of the ones that I was looking at in particular was Simon Earl in Miranda. Miranda forms part of the electorate, the federal electorate of Cook, where Simon Morrison sits. Sorry, Scott Morrison. Simon Earl ran against Morrison at the last federal election, was defeated and defeated fairly soundly, as you would expect. And it was interesting to see how he would subsequently go here. He came very close. Now, this is... The Liberal Party retained this, but there was a 12% swing towards Simon. Wow. Now, in the end, he lost by 2,200 votes, or 2,269 votes to Alina Patinas. So that's retained, and she was the sitting MP. This will be her third term in Parliament. Mm. So difficult not to crack there. The reason I was interested in it in particular was not only the possibility that he might actually win, but it's almost certain that we're going to get a by-election in Cook later this year. Scott Morrison, by all reports, is going to stand down and retire from politics, which would mean a by-election in his seat. Talk is that that will be somewhere in the middle of the year after the budget is delivered. So the, the focus is on that and responding mm. to that rather than him being a distraction. That's never really bothered him, but that's that's sort of the talk. Now, I was curious because if Simon lost this, he will almost certainly run again in that by-election. I was just really curious how it went. So Mm. he did very well. He got 37.5% of the first preference vote, which is very good. If he's able to maintain that in a by-election, who knows?
0: Well, yeah, and particularly in a by-election where the incumbent who was a prime minister is stepping down, you're going to have an unknown untested candidate stepping in to replace him. That's right. It does make the playing field very, very different to what it was when Simon L contested against Scott Morrison, and particularly after Aston, after New South Wales, after all the other state elections, as, as we as we outlined. Yeah, look, I'm certainly looking forward to it. Being a political nerd, bring bring on by elections; these are fun, you know. Absolutely, yeah. Th- these are sort of the the appetites between the main events, sort of thing. Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly right. The other one that I was watching, and it's it's because it's my own electorate, is the, the seat of Drummond here in New South Wales. The sitting MP there is John Sedoti and he retired after ICAC made findings of corrupt conduct against him. He resigned from the party, but he did not resign from Parliament. He said that he would retire at this election, so he didn't stand. And it's interesting the seat of Moines sits in the electorate of canada bay it covers a number of council areas I, i i guess but it's sort of mostly the city of canada bay and you had two a mayor and a former mayor of canada bay standing for the election both women both well credentialed both well connected both well known in the community and replacing someone who was leaving under under corrupt circumstances the seat has ended up being won by the liberal party and and john sadodi was with the liberal party so it's it's being retained by the liberal party but with a 12.4% swing to labor So it came down to 1,200 votes. It was previously held with a a margin of 13.6% and that's been been cut right, right down. So it was an interesting one, Mm. a very, very interesting one just to see. There were only four candidates who ran here. We had a a Greens candidate. So in addition to the Liberal and Labour Party, there was a Green candidate and a candidate from Sustainable Australia and they got 3.4% of the vote. So it's quite clear that voters were sort of looking at their options the greens Mm. candidate got nearly 10 percent of first preferences wow and again like it's interesting we we are very close here in Moines to the seat of Balmain, which is held by the greens um so that was those were sort of two of the ones that i was really interested in 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 particular there you go go democracy go democracy indeed let's let's do it again sometime soon let's have another election
0: We now have Labour governments in every mainland state and territory, with Tasmania the only Liberal-led government still standing. We've not had wall-to-wall Labour governments since Kevin Rudd was Prime Minister. As well as moving New South Wales into the Labour fold, Anthony Albanese's government has broken a century-long record and increased their majority during their first term by winning the Aston by-election. We're going to have a chat with our 2022 lead Senate candidate for Victoria, Leonie Green, about how the Aston by-election played out. And if you're in WA or Queensland and want to help us contest their state elections, all you need to do is join the party and complete a member declaration form. We need 500 members in each of those states to register at state level, so every member counts. And I've put a link in the show notes. Keep the Bastards Honest is brought to you by the Australian Democrats. This episode was edited and produced by me, Alana Mitchell. If you'd like to keep in touch, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube and LinkedIn by searching for Australian Democrats and you can see what we stand for, what we value and what our policy positions are at our website at democrats.org.au. Until next time, thanks for listening.